Chapter twenty two of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beaton lit his pipe when he found himself in his room, and sat down before the dull fire in his grate to think. It struck him there was a dull fire in his heart, a great deal like it, and he worked out a fanciful analogy with the coals still alive and the ashes creeping over them, and the dead clay and cinders. He felt sick of himself, sick of his life, and of all his works. He was angry with Fulkerson for having got him into that art department of his, for having bought him up, and he was bitter at fate because he had been obliged to use the money to pay some pressing debts, and had not been able to return the check his father had sent him. He pitied his poor old father, he ached with compassion for him, and he set his teeth and snarled with contempt through them for his own baseness. This was the kind of world it was, but he washed his hands of it. The fault was in human nature, and he reflected with pride that he had at least not invented human nature. He had not sunk so low as that yet. The notion amused him. He thought he might get a satanic epigram out of it some way. But in the meantime that girl, that wild animal, she kept visibly, tangibly before him. If he put out his hand he might touch hers, he might pass his arm around her waist. In Paris, in a set he knew there, what an effect she would be with that look of hers and that beauty all out of drawing. They would recognize the flame quality in her. He imagined a joke about her being a fiery spirit, or nymph, naiad, whatever, from one of her native gas-wells. He began to sketch on a bit of paper from the table at his elbow vague lines that veiled and revealed a level, dismal landscape, and a vast flame against an empty sky, and a shape out of the flame that took on a likeness and floated detached from it. The sketch ran up the left side of the sheet and stretched across it. Beaton laughed out. Pretty good to let Fulkerson have that for the cover of his first number. In black and red it would be effective. It would catch the eye from the newsstands. He made a motion to throw it on the fire, but held it back and slid it into the table drawer, and smoked on. He saw the dummy with the other sketch in the open drawer, which he had brought away from Fulkerson's in the morning, and slipped in there, and he took it out and looked at it. He made some criticisms in line with his pencil on it, correcting the drawing here and there, and then he respected it a little more though he still smiled at the feminine quality, a young lady quality. In spite of his experience, the night he called upon the Leightons, Beaton could not believe that Alma no longer cared for him. She played at having forgotten him admirably, but he knew that a few months before she had been very mindful of him. He knew he had neglected them since they came to New York, where he had led them to expect interest, if not attention but he was used to neglecting people, and he was somewhat less used to being punished for it, punished and forgiven. He felt that Alma had punished him so thoroughly that she ought to have been satisfied with her work, and to have forgiven him in her heart afterward. He bore no resentment after the first tingling moments were past. He rather admired her for it, and he would have been ready to go back half an hour later and accept pardon and be on the footing of last summer again. Even now he debated with himself whether it was too late to call, but decidedly a quarter to ten seemed late. The next day he determined never to call upon the Leightons again, but he had no reason for this. 
it merely came into a transitory scheme of conduct of retirement from the society of women altogether and after dinner he went round to see them he asked for the ladies and they all three received him alma not without a surprise that intimated itself to him and her mother with no appreciable relenting miss woodburn with the needlework which she found easier to be voluble over than a book expressed in her welcome a neutrality both cordial to beaton and loyal to alma is it snowin outdoors she asked briskly after the greetings were transacted ma goodness she said in answer to his apparent surprise at the question i might as well have stayed in the south for all the winter i've seen in new york yet we don't often have snow much before new year's said beaton miss woodburn is wild for a real northern winter mrs leighton explained the other night i woke up and looked out of the window and saw all the roofs covered with snow and it turned out to be nothing but moonlight i was never so disappointed in my life said miss woodburn if you'll come to st barnaby's next summer you'll have all the winter you want said alma i can't let you slander st barnaby in that way said beaton with the air of wishing to be understood as meaning more than he said yes returned alma coolly i didn't know you were so fond of the climate i never think of it as a climate it's a landscape it doesn't matter whether it's hot or cold with the thermometer twenty below you'll find that it mattered alma persisted is that the way you feel about st barnaby too mrs leighton beaton asked with affected desolation i shall be glad enough to go back in the summer mrs leighton conceded and i should be glad to go now said beaton looking at alma he had the dummy of every other week in his hand and he saw alma's eyes wandering toward it whenever he glanced at her i should be glad to go anywhere to get out of a job i've undertaken he continued to mrs leighton they're going to start some sort of new illustrated magazine and they've got me in for their art department i'm not fit for it i'd like to run away don't you want to advise me a little mrs leighton you know how much i value your taste and i'd like to have you look at the design for the cover of the first number they're going to have a different one for every number i don't know whether you'll agree with me but i think this is rather nice he faced the dummy round and then laid it on the table before mrs leighton pushing some of her work aside to make room for it and standing over her while she bent forward to look at it alma kept her place away from the table my goodness how excitin said miss woodburn may anybody look everybody said beaton well isn't it perfectly charming miss woodburn exclaimed come and look at this miss leighton she called to alma who reluctantly approached what lines are these mrs leighton asked pointing to beaton's pencil scratches they're suggestions of modifications he replied i don't think they improve it much what do you think alma oh i don't know said the girl constraining her voice to an effect of indifference and glancing carelessly down at the sketch the design might be improved but i don't think those suggestions would do it they're mine said beaton fixing his eyes upon her with a beautiful sad dreaminess that he knew he could put into them he spoke with the dreamy remoteness of tone his wind-harp stop wetmore called it i supposed so said alma calmly oh my goodness cried miss woodburn is that the way you artists talk to each other 
Well, I'm glad I'm not an artist, unless I could do all the talking. Artists cannot tell a fib, Alma said, or even act one, and she laughed in Beaton's upturned face. He did not unbend his dreamy gaze. You're quite right. The suggestions are stupid. Alma turned to Miss Woodburn. You hear? Even when we speak of our own work. I never heard anything like it. And the design itself, Beaton persisted. Oh, I'm not an art editor, Alma answered, with a laugh of exultant evasion. A tall, dark, grave-looking man of fifty, with a swarthy face and iron-gray moustache, an imperial and goatee, entered the room. Beaton knew the type. He had been through Virginia sketching for one of the illustrated papers, and he had seen such men in Richmond. Miss Woodburn hardly needed to say, "'May I introduce you to my father, Colonel Woodburn, Mr. Beaton?' The men shook hands, and Colonel Woodburn said, in that soft, gentle, slow southern voice, without our northern contractions, "'I am very glad to meet you, sir. Happy to make your acquaintance. Do not move, madam,' he said to Mrs. Leighton, who made a deprecatory motion to let him pass to the chair beyond her. "'I can find my way.' He bowed a bulk that did not lend itself readily to the devotion, and picked up the ball of yarn she had let drop out of her lap, in half-rising. "'Your worsteds, madam.' "'Yarn, yarn, Colonel Woodburn,' Alma shouted. "'You're quite incorrigible. A spade is a spade.' "'But sometimes it is a trump, my dear young lady,' said the Colonel, with unabated gallantry. "'And when your mother uses yarn, it is worsteds. But I respect worsteds even under the name of yarn. Our ladies, my own mother and sisters, had to knit the socks we wore, all we could get in the war. Yes, and after the war, his daughter put in. The knitting has not stopped yet in some places. Have you been much in the South, Mr. Beaton? Beaton explained just how much. Well, sir, said the Colonel, then you have seen a country making gigantic struggles to retrieve its losses, sir. The South is advancing with enormous strides, sir. "'Too fast for some of us to keep up,' said Miss Woodburn, in an audible aside. "'The pace in Charlottesburg is perfectly killing, and we had to drop out into a slow place like New York.' "'The progress in the South is material now,' said the Colonel, "'and those of us whose interests are in another direction find ourselves isolated, isolated, sir. The intellectual centres are still in the North, sir. The great cities draw the metal activity of the country to them, sir.' necessarily new york is the metropolis oh everything comes here said beaton impatient of the elder's ponderosity another sort of man would have sympathized with the southerner's willingness to talk of himself and led him on to speak of his plans and ideals but the sort of man that beaton was could not do this he put up the dummy into the wrapper he had let drop on the floor beside him and tied it round with string while Colonel Woodburn was talking. He got to his feet with the words he spoke, and offered Mrs. Leighton his hand. "'Must you go?' she asked in surprise. "'I am on my way to a reception,' he said. She had noticed that he was in evening dress, and now she felt the vague hurt that people invited nowhere feel in the presence of those who were going somewhere. She did not feel it for herself, but for her daughter, and she knew Alma would not have let her feel it if she could have prevented it. But Alma had left the room for a moment, 
and she tacitly indulged this sense of injury in her behalf. "'Please say good-night to Miss Leighton for me,' Beaton continued. He bowed to Miss Woodburn. "'Good-night, Miss Woodburn,' and to her father bluntly, "'Good-night.' "'Good-night, sir,' said the Colonel, with a sort of severe suavity. "'Oh, isn't he charming?' Miss Woodburn whispered to Mrs. Leighton when Beaton left the room. Alma spoke to him in the hall without. "'You knew that was my design, Mr. Beaton? Why did you bring it?' "'Why?' He looked at her in gloomy hesitation. Then he said, "'You know why. I wish to talk it over with you, to serve you, please you, get back your good opinion. But I've done neither the one nor the other. I've made a mess of the whole thing.' Alma interrupted him. "'Has it been accepted?' "'It will be accepted, if you will let it.' "'Let it,' she laughed. "'I shall be delighted.' She saw him swayed a little toward her. "'It's a matter of business, isn't it?' "'Purely. Good night.' When Alma returned to the room, Colonel Woodburn was saying to Mrs. Leighton, "'I do not contend that it is impossible, madam, but it is very difficult in a thoroughly commercialized society like yours to have the feelings of a gentleman. How can a businessman, whose prosperity, whose earthly salvation, necessarily lies in the adversity of someone else, be delicate and chivalrous, or even honest? If we could have had time to perfect our system in the South, to eliminate what was evil and develop what was good in it, we should have had a perfect system. But the virus of commercialism was in us, too. It forbade us to make the best of a divine institution, and tempted us to make the worst. Now the curse is on the whole country. The dollar is the measure of every value, the stamp of every success. What does not sell is a failure, and what sells succeeds. "'The hobby is out, my dear,' said Miss Woodburn, in an audible aside to Alma. "'Were you speaking of me, Colonel Woodburn?' Alma asked. "'Surely not, my dear young lady.' "'But he's been saying that artists are just as greedy about money as anybody,' said his daughter. "'The law of commercialism is on everything in a commercial society,' the Colonel explained, softening the tone in which his convictions were presented. "'The final reward of art is money, and not the pleasure of creating.' Perhaps they would be willing to take it all out in that, if other people would let them pay their bills in the pleasure of creating, his daughter teased. They are helpless like all the rest, said her father, with the same deference to her as to other women. I do not blame them. Oh, my goodness! Didn't you say, sir, that Mr. Beaton had bad manners? Alma relieved a confusion which he seemed to feel in reference to her. Bad manners? He has no manners. That is, when he's himself. He has pretty good ones when he's somebody else. Miss Woodburn began, Oh, ma! and then stopped herself. Alma's mother looked at her with distressed question, but the girl seemed perfectly cool and contented, and she gave her mind provisionally to a point suggested by Colonel Woodburn's talk. Still, I can't believe it was right to hold people in slavery, to whip them and sell them. It never did seem right to me, she added, in apology for her extreme sentiments to the gentleness of her adversary. I quite agree with you, madam, said the colonel. Those were the abuses of the institution. 
but if we had not been vitiated on the one hand and threatened on the other by the spirit of commercialism from the north and from europe too those abuses could have been eliminated and the institution developed in the direction of the mild patriarchalism of the divine intention the colonel hitched his chair which figured a hobby careering upon its hind legs a little toward mrs leighton and the girls approached their heads and began to whisper they fell deferentially silent when the colonel paused in his argument and went on again when he went on at last they heard mrs leighton saying and have you heard from the publishers about your book yet then miss woodburn cut in before her father could answer the course of commercialism is on that too they are training to find out whether it will pay and they are right quite right said the colonel there is no longer any other criterion and even a work that attacks the system must be submitted to the test of the system the system won't accept destruction on any other terms said miss woodburn demurely End of chapter twenty two